Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, as always, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty, as ever. G'day, Steve. How's things? Good, mate. Good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and hope you've got a glass of red for this Friday afternoon. Good to go. So uh, we've got a special guest today, very special guest. Thrilled to have on the episode this week, Peter Simpson Morgan. Uh, would be familiar name to many of our, I was going to say older listeners, but that sounds rude. That's a good start. <laughs> Maybe oh, a... no, they've got some old fart on this week. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a less familiar name to some of our younger cohorts, I should say. Peter has made a name for himself in the uh, the funds industry back in the day with Perpetual and then later with 452 Capital, which uh, I guess uh, sharp-eyed cricket fans would uh, recognise the relevance of the 452 number being a Don Bradman number. But uh, g'day, Peter. Welcome to the show and uh, really excited to have you on. Good evening and good morning, boys. Uh, yeah, great to be here. So, uh, just a, uh, I should say Peter, because otherwise we're going to get confused between Pete and Peter. So, Peter, why don't you give us a bit of an overview, especially for maybe some of our younger listeners, about how you got into stock market-related work? Because I think one thing we do share in common, sadly, is being uh, qualified chartered accountants, but neither of us kept it up. So, uh, why don't you give us a bit of a, a background about how you got into being a broker and funds management? Yeah, Pete, no, that's fine. I mean... Um... I think like most kids at, at school, I think the thing that I did, I just sort of kept my options open and, and I wasn't the smartest kid at school, And but I scraped into uni and did accounting, got through that at uni and then did the, you know, went on to become a chartered accountant, qualified for that and that was good in the sense that, you know, eventually I learned about financial accounts and, you know, what accounting was all about and breaking out of uh, chartered accounting, I took a job as an internal auditor uh, with BT Australia. Basically, the plan then was just to try and get into New York, New York and you know, travel a bit. But that opened up my eyes to financial markets in, in 1985. You know, BT was, was basically the equivalent or somewhat better at the time than Macquarie Bank. It was a young go, go, go place. It broke me into financial markets. It got my interest. I then broke into stockbroking in 1987, June 1987. And I think as, you know, even the younger the younger listeners will know October 87 was when the market uh, collapsed in one you know one day or one night over 20%. A couple of years later, Australia was in the, the recession it had to have. I wasn't great as a stockbroker. Basically, stockbroking is uh, a selling game. But my interest in, in companies and markets was, for want of a better word, ignited. One of the first clients I had as a stockbroker was Perpetual, and that led to me going up and joining, you know, a couple of guys and a couple of girls at Perpetual towards the end of 1990. And from there, you know, a group of us took a small trustee company to a reasonable player in the funds management industry that was only just starting out with superannuation in the 1990s. I spent 12 years at Perpetual, you know, ended up running quite a bit of money. You know, when I joined Perpetual, there was uh, about $70, $70 million uh, in the, um, the funds when I left and it's just not me, but a group of us, you know, took that up to you know, $12, $14 billion. And it's a crude thing to say, but, you know, we had a lot of fun along the way in doing it. And, you know, I'd reached, I suppose, some maturity of perpetual. I was, you know, still young enough to go out and try something different. Now that led to 452, which is effectively a boutique, set that up and, and went from there. Very successful. I think uh, before we come on to uh, your investing style, which I guess is uh, probably going to be the crux of today's interview, uh, I think there's, there's some pretty useful life advice in there for younger people anyway, because uh, one of the things that people often say to me is, uh, 
you know, I'm thinking about training as a chartered accountant. I don't know what else to do. It was a very similar situation for myself. You know, at university, I was mainly interested in cricket and drinking. I wasn't really thinking too much about a future career. But if you're the sort of person like I was and you just don't know what you want to do with your life, doing the CA qualification, you know, going into professional practice, getting the the certificate and so on, as you said, it does keep your options open. And I guess, uh, Peter, you're one of the lucky ones because you found something, heard you say elsewhere, you know, you found a career that you would have done whether you were paid for it or not. So, I mean, which is the ideal career. And, um, yeah, probably to looking back on my journey, I stayed in professional practice. I think I stomached uh, seven or eight years or something. And then eventually, it took me a bit of time, eventually found something I was interested in and went off and did my own thing. But if you're not sure about what career to take, you know, you just got to look at all the the CEOs of some of the big listed companies, a lot of them started out with a CA background. So uh, some, some pretty useful advice there for people who aren't sure what to do with their lives. And uh, some of us are still trying to work it out. Before I flick over, because I know Steve's got about a thousand questions he wants to ask you about the Peter Lynch style of investing and all of that stuff. But uh, just uh, out of interest, how quickly did you realize getting involved in uh, stock picking and funds management I mean, how quickly did you realise that that was the career you really wanted to do? Away from university and away from chartered accounting, I'd always had an interest in, in markets. While I was at uni, I worked for a for a bookmaker, one of Australia's largest rails bookmakers. I'd always had an interest in, in it's going to sound crude, in you know, in, in markets moving and, and herds and all that sort of thing, and I, I love that. And as you say... I'll never regret doing chartered accounting because it's it, 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 it at the end of the day it, it, it taught me a lot and I can actually you know I, I now after three years at uni and you know three years of chartered accounting I you know I can actually read a balance sheet and all that sort of thing and but you know it was also a mix in the sense that when I got to BT it was a young go forward place it was headed up with guys like Chris Corrigan, Gillian uh, Broadbent, guys like Peter Warren. And underneath them, there was a whole heap of young young kids and young guys and girls that were 30 and 40 years old that were, you know, were taking on the big banks and, and making a lot of ground with them. I wanted to find the next BT because, you know, when I was there, I was only there for two years or 18 months to two years. And it had grown from, you know, about 300 people when I joined to about 2,000. And um, and that took me on to, to stock breaking. And I then, you know, as I said, I went to Perpetual and you know, I started talking to Perpetual. And, you know, a guy called Anton Tagliaferro had gone up there to run it. Coincidentally, he was a chartered accountant. John Murray that was up there was also a chartered accountant. And, you know, other guys that were in our audit group, you know, you're probably aware of what audit groups are, you know, guys like Chris Hadley. Chris Hadley that's now running um, one of Australia's uh, very good uh, private equity organisations, Quadrant, was also in that audit group as well. So... And there's been a lot of other guys and girls who have gone on from chartered accounting into to other fields, but it, it provided the right basis. But in answer, you know, to, to, to quickly get to answer your question, I've had an interest in markets, but I also, you know, I'd love the, it's a sport in a lot of ways to me. It's always been a bit of a sport to me, and that's, you know, one of the reasons we chose 452 as a name. It's got a, the markets have got a lot of sort of cut and thrust and, you know, a lot of action and movement, hasn't it? I mean, the best way I can put it, it's like a sport and it's just, you know, I just, it's not, you know, everyone says to go out and find what you love, uh, you know, when you succeed. You know, it's usually successful people that say that. But I think the other thing, I always had a bit of confidence, personal confidence as well, and I didn't really, you know, some of the, you know, some of the things that we did at Perpetual, we wouldn't have got away with at other places because they were so institutionalised. And, you know, very early on to try and grow with the funds and the management we were we were getting in the door, we had to become very proactive and very, well, not so much aggressive, but we had to take a lot of ownership in the shares that we invested in. You know, if they started going off off the rails, you know, you know, and get aggressive in terms of shareholder activism and all that sort of thing. It was all that cut and thrust as well. It just wasn't, it just wasn't a share going up or down. It was, you know, it's very much the sport of it as well. Early on in your career, Peter, you read um, Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, which is a, I guess, a highly recommended read for anybody who hasn't come across the book before. And obviously that being of its time as well, that obviously informed a lot of how you thought about investing, you know, trying to think about the strength of the underlying company rather than just uh, looking at stock ticker symbols and so on. 
so Steve, I know you had a, a handful of questions that hang off that. So I'll, I'll flick over to you and um, maybe you can grill Peter on some of his um, investment style. Yeah, cheers, Pete. The, the thing that interests me, Peter, is I've, I've never worked in the funds industry. And so I don't know what it looks like on the inside. And the thing that sort of strikes me is, you know, the, the stereotypical fun guy, if you look at Wall Street, is like, you know, either young or whatever age, but, you know, long hours, you know, lots of work and all that sort of stuff. I'd be really interested to know what, within reason, your normal day looked like when you were a fund manager. So, you know, did you sit around and, you know, like Buffett, read bloody annual reports or like Peter Lynch and go and visit companies, you know, that sort of stuff? Well, it changed, it changed a lot over 20 years, Steve, and um, when we first were at Perpetual, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've told the story a few times, we basically walked into a portfolio that had su- survived 87 and was well positioned going into the recession we had to have, and that formed the basis for how we invested. And Anton bought, somehow came across Peter Lynch's one up on Wall Street, and then I read it, and it sort of brought everything together. But it was in an environment where we'd been left this really good portfolio by three or four people that had left Perpetual. And I've got to stress this, you know, in those days in the early 90s, you know, we didn't know if we had a job the next day, let alone the next, next year. I mean, it was that bad. You know, everyone at the time wanted to be a, a stockbroker. No one wanted to be a fund manager. And I can distinctly remember the, you know, the guy that uh, was above, you know, one of the directors of Perpetual saying that, you know, fund managers are a dime a dozen, you know. It was was that was that bad at the time. And in the early days, you know, we had this portfolio that was made up of probably 60 or 70% of them were, were small, good quality companies. They were unresearched by the breaking community. And the reason they were unresearched mainly was there was no liquidity in the stocks and there was no effectively no brokerage on an ongoing basis in them. To start off, um, you know, we had to go out and see those companies and and we formed relations relationships with them, you know, and grew with them. You know, companies that are around today like Brickworks and Sol Patterson's, uh, for example, back in those days, they weren't in they weren't public to the market at all. Um, yeah. and other companies like, you know, Gibson Chemicals, Australian Chemical Holland's, you know, you had to go out and see them, or George Western Foods, and and you developed relationships with them. I mean, even I was thinking the other day, I mean, you know, there was a time there where we went down on a trip down to Tasmania, and in those days there was eight listed companies on the stock market from Tasmania. I'm not sure if there's any today, but maybe Tassel. But, you know, you'd go down there for a week, and, you know, I can remember playing golf with, you know, John Gay from Guns and, you know, going to Clements and Marshall, which was an apple farm, and that was the other thing, you know. It was so enjoyable. It was just, and we had so many good times, so many funny times, just meeting companies and, and learning about them. And, you know, as you said, you know, Peter Lynch has got that, that saying where, you know, if you turn over 300 rocks, you'll find, you know, you've got the chance to find 10, 10, 10 really good ones. And um, yeah, it was all part of that. We grew with it. A couple of the things that Stephen and I um, have talked about in our book and elsewhere is, there's a couple of things that have really changed, I guess, since back in your day. One is uh, the rise of ETFs, and the other is um, you mentioned uh, brokerage. I mean, obviously, brokerage fees are an issue, but these days it's relatively easy to invest your money overseas as a diversification play. But I guess the, my question is when I look at the Australian stock market today, obviously, we know it's a pretty cyclical. Uh, market in Australia. In fact, when I look at the, the component parts, you know, you've got the banks and insurance companies, which is like half the market. Then I've got BHP and Rio Tinto and a few other mining stocks. It Would it be a fair observation that it, it looks to me as though the, the sort of quality, faster growing companies, is there, is there less to choose from these days? And it, I suppose the other thing is these days, there's a lot more people in the funds management space than there would have been back in your day. So what do you think about people who are managing their own money? Do you think it's um, a fool's errand trying to out, outperform the market, being a stock picker? Or do you think people should look at ETFs? Or, you know, uh, I'm interested just to get your view on it because it, it looks to me like there's a lot more research going into the, the individual companies these days. And therefore, for the for the average individual, maybe it's, it's harder to find that edge. Because I, I think back in the day, Peter Lynch would have said, well, 
just by avoiding the rubbish, you can you can beat the market. But is that is that harder to do these days? Do you think? Oh, there's a few things there, Pete. I mean, you've got to remember that, as you said, Australia's the big companies in Australia have traditionally and still are very much geared towards mining and banking. Whereas in the US, although it's changed a little bit in the last three or four years with the development of the tech companies, the largest companies in the US has been around 5% of the index. And in Australia, you can get the, you know, the big situation where you know banks can get 30 to 30% of the index, and I have got to that. And um, because we're such a small market and the mining stocks can get to, you know, to 30% of the market. And and I'm not saying this because I was a, a stock picker or, or the like. I've just, you know, I just I just believe it. I think indexing in Australia or passive investing in Australia is somewhat different is in the in the US or in the broader markets. And that and in that sense, it's it's somewhat more risky. You know, if you had, for example, I'm not saying we're going to have one, but if you had a banking crisis in in Australia and banks were 30% of the index, it'd have a lot bigger impact. Than it would elsewhere, and the same if we get a, a downturn in in our iron ore, it'll have a, a lot a lot bigger impact in terms of the index here. It's it's not that black and white to say whether people should invest passive or you know or they should invest on their own. I actually believe if if people get educated with, and that's one of the problems we've got in Australia, particularly superannuation, is it's not it's not well understood. Um, and the same with investing, if the education lifts, you know, I do believe in what Peter Lynch says, and it, you know, he, he says he was misquoted in the book, but Actually, I don't think he was. When he's, you know, his, his wife had given tips on what to buy in terms of what she thought was moving or in terms of sales or that sort of thing. I think, you know, as long as people, I think it's a lot more dangerous, put it the other way. I think it's a lot more dangerous to follow herds or follow, you know, stocks that have risen 50% in price or, you know, they've come out with a really good result and that's in the paper than it is to, to do the work properly on your own. I was interested in talking about, you know, Peter Lynch and he has those six categories, slow growers, fast growers, turnaround stalwarts, asset plays and cyclicals. When you, there's a, I've got a couple of questions. One I want to get to importantly is on a, on a personal note, it ties in with Lynch's stuff. Did you ever say to yourself, I'm going to be a specialist in fast growers or asset plays or turnarounds? Or did you just basically, did you invest basically on fundamentals or did you look at price to book and go, oh, that looks cheap, that's an asset play, hey, that's worth some money, or, oh, no, that's too small for us, you know. And the variance now with, you know, before you were managing as part of a team or at 452, you're managing billions. Is it different to what you do now with your own money or do you still take the same approach? Well, let me start with the last point first. I think all, all your listeners should realise that a share fund manager or an equity fund manager, their performance is measured against an index or a benchmark. It is not. You have to realise that if the index goes down or the benchmark goes down, they can still think they've done or be rewarded for doing a good yeah. job if they outperform. Now, when I'm out here on my own, my first point of call is I don't want to lose money, right? Yeah. I don't, this is my wealth. And, I mean, I know, I, and again, I may not have articulated that properly, but the, the biggest difference now between me being a fund manager and me managing my own money is I don't want to lose that money. It's a starting point. And that's not how a fund manager thinks. So, you know, we didn't think that way when we started in at Perpetual, but because the industry developed, you know, it was led from overseas, we then, you know, we, you know, we then were told by consultants and researchers to, we were measured against the benchmark and the like. Now, again, to take the Peter Lynch comparison more, you know, simplistically, you know, what I, you know, what I do is that when I get attracted to looking at a stock, and it might be, you know, it's just the idea, when I get attracted to the idea of looking at a stock, the next point of call is to is to get the accounts, research the company, and then try and put it into one of those six categories that you've talked about with Peter Lynch, or those categories that Peter Lynch talks about. And okay. then, and you know, if you want, we can, you know, we go up. And, and it's very simple, right? And I think investing is very simple. And I've also got to stress that you should go into investing thinking that you are going to get three out of ten wrong, or maybe five out of ten wrong. And um, you're not going to get everyone right, but you have to have a reason for for doing what you're doing and be able to clearly understand why you're doing and, and simplistically be able to articulate how you're doing. Like if you don't understand something, you don't have to do it. So I've been in the market since 87 and I reckon I've seen four or five 
really good times when markets have been on their knees where you can swing hard and swing, you know, it's just swing really hard. You don't have to put 100% of your money in the market today or, you know, you don't have to be fully invested all the time. Only swing and swing well. But, you, should, you know, you should have some money in the market today. But I've got nowhere near, I'm nowhere near, near fully, you know, fully invested. And so, but then the other thing you've got to remember is the Australian market, as we were talking about before, is somewhat different to the US. In the US, they've got the great growth stocks, the great tech stocks, right? Australia hasn't got many of those or consistently hasn't had many of those. It's had some, but it hasn't had a lot. It's had a lot of cyclicals. Now, whether they be, you know, iron ore stocks, copper stocks or, or the like, and it's, you know, it's had a lot of the sort of the stalwarts and a bit of a bit of the turnarounds and the like. But um, the markets are somewhat different. And, you know, the biggest difference is that there isn't a lot of growth stocks in the Australian marketplace. There has been some, but not a lot. I think, so, uh, you know, part of uh, my job today is to try and uh, to, to, to uh, sort of bring out some of those key points. And you're making it difficult for me, Peter, because you've got so many words of wisdom there. But I think um, just to bring out some of those points that you've just highlighted there. So one of the things that Stephen and I talk about is the the benefits of managing your own money. Uh, Steve calls it the three C's, cost, choice, and control. Just summarising there what I think I've heard you say, something to be said for uh, simplicity, but particularly having some kind of a systematic approach. But I think in particular, um, one of the things, so Steve and I work on these eight timeless principles. You've got the four thought principles, which you consider uh, before you invest, and then the four action principles, which is effectively putting it all into process. But if you're looking for one overarching guiding principle, it's exactly what you just said, don't lose money. Because I think um, one of the things I hear a lot uh, at the moment is people, you know, they're benchmarking against the ASX 200, but it can lead you down this path of thinking, well, you know, if the ASX is down 10% and you're only down nine, then you've done well, you know, that which is kind of the, the benchmarking approach. Whereas, you know, certainly uh, one of the things we've always uh, stressed is if you're looking to compound your wealth, then, you know, your starting point should be don't lose money because if you if you have a drawdown, you've got to work much harder just to get back to where you started. And I think a couple of other interesting insights there is that you don't need to be 100% invested in stocks all the time because at the moment, overall, markets are not cheap. Yeah, also, as you mentioned, that you don't have to be quite so Australia-focused these days because it's become relatively quite easy to look overseas if, if that's what, what you want to do. Is, is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's a fair, it's a fair, you know, simple summary. But I mean, if you're going to go charging off overseas again, make sure you understand. You know, I mean, the starting point is the company, as far as I'm concerned. The most, the, the most you can know about that company in terms of what it does and what its risks are, the better. And and don't, you know, I mean, we all know, you know, I mean, it's all known that you know, ninety percent of stockbroker research is always going to be on the buy side rather than on on the sell side. And again, it just brings to the fore, just to your own homework, and but you know, encapsulate that in as best you can in terms of you know if a stock's under undervalued or overvalued. The best example of a you know one of using Peter Lynch's categories of not losing money or hopefully not losing money is the asset play. And you're a chartered account. I mean, if you go to a, if you go and, and it, you'd be surprised how many times it happened. If you go to a set of accounts and the hard asset, hard NTA, net tangible assets of the company are a dollar, and you can buy that stock at 80 cents when the market is down, you know, a lot, a lot, lot, lot of the time you will make money out of it. And, uh, you know, I, I can give you examples over the last 10 years, companies like Magellan, that, you know, is where it is today, companies, little companies like Veals, Chalmers, even in the listed investment companies, you know, 18 months ago, they were all trading at, you know, 20% discounts when the market was out to their hard asset backing. And with the listed investment companies, it only needed sentiment to change markets to, to recover after they'd fallen, you know, 20 or 30% in in uh, March 2020. And that that discount would shrink. It would shrink. And if the managers were all right and they weren't, none of them were geared. It wasn't that hard. And I'm not trying to be arrogant in saying that, but all I'm trying to say is this as long as you understand to a large extent of the ball that you're hitting, you know, where it's coming at you from, it's it's doable, for want of a better word. One of our eight principles is we talk about asset allocation, you know, and one of the problems I've 
seen with investors and also experienced, um, which is rather unpleasant, is the idea of over allocating to a, a to a stock, to a market, or anything. You know, like because you you walk in, you see a company, and you go, "Oh my God, this is a great company." Jesus, you know, I'm going to put a, a a decent whack of money on it. First of all, how do you asset allocate your money? Do you sort of say, "Well, I'm." For example, I got a million bucks, so it's ten stocks, and it's a hundred thousand for each one. Or do you sort of say this one's a really good play that'll get you know one hundred and fifty, and that one, well, I'll put fifty in there. And my second question from there is, on your fundamental, you know, analysis, so to speak, do you look at a company every six months and say, right, I need to trim that because it's overweight in your portfolio, or you say? I just got a feeling this is, you know, that the numbers are not trending, you know, the way I thought they would or anything like that? Simplistically, I don't asset allocate and simplistically I don't have target percentages of my own money in a portfolio, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not going to bet my, all my wealth in one stock. And to flip that another way, I mean, if, if I'm unsure about something but I, I, I think there is value there I might t- and I don't know the stock that well, I may take a small position in it and just watch it for a while. On the other side of that, there's a number of stocks, that, you know, even over the last 10 years that I've followed and had built up reasonably good positions in, and I know them quite well, and I have a lot more comfort with those stocks, and I'll have a bigger position in those stocks going forward with that education and knowing more. It's a, it's a matter of feels not the right word, but it's where the confidence level is. I mean, I'm never going to be the guy that's going to have, you know, 50% of his portfolio in one stock. I'm not, I'm not that type of person. You know, number one, I've got a charter county background. I'm more a pessimist than, a, than an optimist. Um, I, you know, for all, you know, it wasn't necessarily a great thing, but, you know, when I started, we were in the recession we had to have. And, I, you know, honestly, that's tainted me some, some ways, but in a good way in some ways as well. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I am, I am overly cautious. And I think the other thing, you and your listeners should, re- you know, and you probably do realise this at the moment, is that we're in an environment where interest rates are zero. I- I've lost count of the number of people that talk about returns first and don't even mention capital preservation. And everyone is everyone is in, you know, it, but think of the rich as well. I mean, that's where, the, that's where the leverage is. I mean, they're all in the market. Everyone's in the market and, and suddenly a, you know, a 2% return versus a zero return from a bank is... What everyone wants, and I just think, you know, I think we're in an environment now where, and it's been going on for a while, where you know, capital preservation is, you know, isn't even thought about in a lot of areas. And until there's a correction, and we saw a correction in, you know, March 2020, of you know, of 20 percent. And I've also lost count of the number of people that you know came up to me, and, and smart people that have, have come up to me and told me that they sold at the bottom and they're no longer in the share market, and it's. I don't think it's that black and white. There is some science in investing, but there's a lot of art as well. I'm sorry, I'm probably not answering your question, but to be honest, I'm just trying to be brutally honest with you. Yeah, that's good. I, I, uh, I just uh, an interesting uh, insight there, Peter, that you mentioned you know, you, you're probably a product of the environment, maybe starting your broking career a few months ahead of uh, the October 87 crash and also early 90s recession and I think one of the things we've talked about on previous episodes is that we're all a product of the environment we cut our teeth in whether we realize it or not you know I think we were saying the other day Steve you know I lived through a a massive UK housing credit cycle and then the same again in Australia and it kind of tilts you you know towards a a set of biases that you 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 know you probably don't realize that have been sort of infused in you just by the environment you've experienced. Um, I, I guess the, my question was, I've, I've heard you say elsewhere you're, you're a long-only investor and you don't short stocks, which um, you know, for me, my personality type is I'm, I'm an optimist and I t- tend to be a glass half full person. And therefore, for me, shorting has never really felt, you know, it's a bit of an esoteric point, but I like to back winners, right? You know, that's that's just my personality type. And therefore, I've always been, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of shorting here and there, but I wouldn't say anything significant, but I'm very much a long-only style investor, which I've heard you say elsewhere. Any insights there in terms of for people who are cautious or pessimistic, should they just wait for better opportunities rather than shorting? I know we're not not talking about personal advice, just interested to get your insights. I've never shorted the stock, Pete. I mean, I've, you know, I think, you know, one of the problems I'd have doing that is that or one of the problems you have been 
a shorter, and I'm, a, you know, I'm not against shorting. It obviously makes a market. I'm happy for it to make a market upon buying something. But the call has to be immediate. You can be short and right for a long time, which makes you wrong, if you know what I mean. You're always going to have more money going into a market, particularly when they're bullish, than is going to be shorted. So it actually goes against you. But I've always had the view that I'm investing in a company to invest, not to short. And I mean, it, it used to always annoy me when I was running money, institutional money, that I'd be buying a stock and the, you know, the, the super fund that I was buying buying it for was lending it out to get a 2% return or a 5 or 6% return via the short facil- facilitation to the shorters. And basically, and I, I still, still to this day, I'm not convinced the system balances, but that's, that's, you know, it's too scientific for today. But again, I'm just trying to keep it simple. I understand investing the way I want to do it and the way I've grown up doing it, the way I've learned doing it. I actually think I'm smarter today than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago via experience. And, you know, I'm, you know, I, you know I said, I've said it to a few people recently. I, I still reckon by the time, I don't know, I suppose you guys are about 40 or 50 or something, but let's say you've got another 30 years to live. I still, I still reckon you'll get another, you know, four or five sizable corrections in the market where you can go all in and go bang and, and swing really hard. But, but that's not to say it shouldn't be in the market today, but just don't be in the market today because you just want to get a, you know, you're trying to chase a 2% return versus a 0% return from, from the bank. It brings up an interesting point, Pete, which, I, Peter, I've been harping on for, you know, quite some time. I'm a fervent believer, and I, I, I learned this, I think, mainly in 07, 08. And the reason why, I, I'm a fervent believer in the, the Kate ratio, right, which tells you about the, you know, the Schiller stuff. And I use that in a in a moment. It's thirty nine. Okay, so I look at that and say, in agreement with you, it's not a great time to have a lot of money in the market. And my point being, a lot of value investors got caught in 0708 because they were bottom up investors, right? You know, get a good company. You, you know, if it's a good company and it's a good value, you know, don't worry about the market. Just get in there and buy that company. I remember reading um, Bull, Bulls, Bears and a Croupier by uh, Matthew Kidman, and he said when, you know, they would go out and come back at lunch and the market had, you know, dropped 8% and this sort of thing. Um, the first, if I remember correctly, about the first two weeks of the market in 08, it fell 12 days straight, right, and it lost, you know, a, a lot. That belted a lot of value investors because, at that stage, the Australian uh, Cape ratio, the long-term average is about 16 or 17, and we were at 31. So I personally think that's why, you know, it's taken a long time and we haven't done that well. So my, my question is, do you ever think about the broader macro market cycles and say, that's a really good company, even though it's a good company, I suspect I'll get it cheaper because there'll be a panic sell you know, in the next 12 months or because the market's exuberant or, you know, stuff like that? The one thing I have learned is that market timing is is it's not that easy to do. Um, but we all know, and I mean, we all know today that the markets are very bullish. There's a lot of liquidity in markets. You know, everyone's in the market. You've only got to look at the retail investors in the US. You've only got to look at the crypto market. You've only got to look at... And, and markets are throthy, you know. You know, as Buffett said, you, you know, you want to be greedy when you know everyone else is, you know, panicking or and, and the reverse. But as I said, I've never shorted a stock. I, I don't want to short the market. I've got I don't know, probably you know, fifty percent of my wealth, maybe forty five percent of my wealth in the market at the moment. At times, it's been a lot higher. But having said all that, I'm comfortable that the companies that I'm in, you know, touch wood for all the right reasons, will, you know, will be there tomorrow and survive. Whereas, like, you know, I've gut feel, I think a lot of the stuff out there today may, you know, 50% of it may not be there. And uh, and we're in a different environment. If you're going back to 08, don't forget the central bank started doing what they're doing and have done what they've done for the last 12 years. It's, that sort of help isn't going to be there to the same scale again. And I'm not trying to be too bearish. I mean, I'm, I'm not even trying to, you know, I'm not trying to pick, pick, pick a collapsing market. All I'm saying is I just, 
you know, I, I just don't see the value as, as much as I could at other times in the marketplace. And I'm very cautious, you know, on certain things like, you know, crypto and the like. I don't understand it. I'm trying to learn it. But only because only there's so many smart people in it, you know. I mean, I don't think some of the guys in it are, are complete complete idiots. But, but and that's partly the fault of the central banks for, let, you know, going off on a tangent, for letting it all occur with regards to the easy money around. But we're in an environment where I've never, you know, I've never seen the money as easy it is today, ever in my, you know, in my career or my investing life. And you know, I was going to say to you before. I mean, when I was thinking about it, you know, when I started, I could give you ten things that are different today than they were when I started in 1990. No interest rates when I started were ten percent. Today, there's no interest rates. You know, everyone wanted to be a, a stockbroker. No one wanted to be a fund manager. Um, you know, technology was nothing like it is today. I mean, you know, I was, you know, I was a stockbroker. You'd had to get orders in via telex every night. You sent telex, telexes off to London to inform them what had happened in the Australian market. Today it's very immediate. You know what I mean? You can't get out and see companies today because there's so many fund managers going out and seeing them. Everyone's everyone's doing third hand or via meetings. And if you've got 300 fund managers in a room at a meeting, it's, it's very hard to get get to know a company and you've got to supplement for that. And, you know, things like PE ratios were around when I started. Today it's all price-to-sales ratios or price-to-promise price to or whatever. And, I mean, and that's a recipe, you know, at some stage. Disaster's a hard word, but it, 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 it's it's it, it's going to cause trouble in some areas, is, you know, when, when this liquidity stops. And the other thing, and I think the biggest risk in markets today or the most riskiest part of the markets today is the, the illiquid side of the market, the venture capital side of the market, where there is no liquidity if things just go bad. And that even though there's a lot of liquidity, that can dry up. And when it dries up, it has a double effect of people not being able to get out of positions, but it's also not providing the liquidity to, to companies to, to, to survive. And that's gone. And that's the other thing that's different today is that when I started in 1990, you know, coming out of the 80s, debt was funding balance sheets. Today, and funding companies. Today it's almost, it is very much the reverse. It's equity and that's where the risk is. Yeah. The, the risk is very much today in, in equity, right? The banks the banks provided the stupid money in the 80s. Today today, and in, and in the, you know, the 2000 period, but today I think a lot of the, you know, the stupid money is being provided by by the equity investors. Not, not necessarily in listed markets, but off market in, in venture capital and the like. Yeah, private equity and sort of SPAC. Type arrangements and venture cap. Some of the venture capital companies, you know, they're very big now. I mean, you know, have a look at have a look at SoftBank and that. I mean, it's like it's like you know, put all this, you know, let's all back red on the table. You know, it's anyway. I'll, I'll be interested to see how it turns out, but I don't have to play there. We don't have to play there if you don't want to. I yeah. mean, if you don't want to play, don't play. I mean, it's as I said, you know, at the end of the day, particularly as you get older, you want capital. You know, if you're 20 or 30, you haven't got another 50 years when you're 60 to, to get the losses back. And, if, you know, if you lose if you lose 50% of the stock, it's got to double to get your 50% back. And that's a crude example. But you can work that out in your own computer, you know, your own calculator. If a market falls 10%, how much you've got to get back to get back to square one? Uh, but we, we might have to put some stuff in the show notes for the younger listeners about uh, telex orders coming through in the morning because people will be <laughs> people will be thinking it's a, it's a different world from uh, today just jumping onto uh, a personal brokerage account I, back early in my career I, I had a, a, a financial controller job at Australia Square and it, it reminded me I, I know that you uh, when you left Perpetual you went out on your own and you uh, famously founded uh, 452 Capital which um I think is a, a Don Bradman high score of 452, not out for the non-cricket fans. I, I was interested, a couple of questions. One is, um, did you find there were different uh, stresses and strains of running a, a portfolio but and also your own business? Because I know you, you've said elsewhere that you, know, you really enjoyed the job and it was never about the money. My other question is, like beyond 452, and I know you had some health issues and you've been sort of managing your own money for the past 10 years is that a is that a different what is different about life now that you're managing your own money and you're not running portfolios on behalf of other people you know there's a few things there Pete I mean going out and doing four or five two when I did it I had the guy called Warwick Negus that effectively ran the business took a lot of that distraction away from me so what I'm saying to you is I was you know in the initial years I was left to run the money, and I, I've always been of the belief that seventy-five percent, if not ninety percent, of fund managers can run money, but they can't run people. 
And, you know, I saw that a bit at Perpetual and, um, you know, I wanted to try and stay away from that. That's why. One of the advantages of fund management houses is they can have a, you know, a HR department and the like. And when you're smaller in a boutique, but it's, it's not that easy. And you have to get involved in the people business, you know, at some stages. And it's not, it's not always conducive to, you know, to the managing of money because it's a distraction. And as I, you know, try to allude to is, you know, fund managers in a lot of ways, and perhaps myself as well, are in some ways eccentric. And it's not always, you know, conducive to a normal business type of environment. I can put it that way. And I mean, I mean, the other thing, you know, the biggest difference, you know, when I was running money at Perpetual at 452, we're talking five up to $10 billion at, at one stage. And I'm obviously not running that amount of money today, but the biggie, I've always said, you know, a funds management, particularly in Australia, is like our racehorse at, at Randwick. Um, the more money you, the managers, the more money you, you're managing, you know, whether it's in the billions or whatever, it's like a racehorse carrying more weight at, at Randwick. But you can win. But you are handicapped by the weight of money and, you know, away from not trying to lose that money. I mean, obviously, if I'm only investing my own money, the spread of investments is back to what it was like when we initially went to Perpetual. You know, we could invest in the whole market and companies that weren't in an index and I can still do that today. And I'm not being rushed to invest the money or be fully invested. Uh, I, you, know, you know, I think a lot of the mandates I ended up having at you know, four or five two. I had to be, you know, fully invested or 95%, 95% invested every day of the week, even though I, you know, and I didn't necessarily want to be. And that, um, in terms of opportunities, that, you know, that's, that runs against you as well. So there's there's all those sort of things. I mean, it's just, it's it's a, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's very different, if I can put it that way. Did you ever worry about managing billions of dollars, either in Perpetual or BT or in 452, did you ever think, oh, Jesus, you know, I'm managing a bloody lot of money, I hope it doesn't go bad or, you know, just fairly standard stuff? I didn't worry about it. I worried about, obviously, again, this is what sort of, you know, got annoying is you become so tired of watching watching performance on a on a yeah. quarterly basis or on a yearly basis, and that's what the that's that's and that's transposed into super funds today. They're, I bet you they're all there watching their performance on a quarterly basis, and it got so stupid at four or five two is that you know we had a really good relationship with Colonial, and we could see what the portfolio was doing on a minute by minute basis, and it was just becoming ridiculous, you know. And it, and you get yourself into those those sort of things. I was never really worried about the companies I was in, but as we got bigger, and one of the things we had to do it is we had to become very active and in, in terms of activism. And, you know, I mean, you know, we took on the AMP Society in the early years. We took took on a lot of companies. We used to write letters. We used to write letters to companies saying they should pay our franc credits and we'd get letters back. And it was, we weren't afraid to do it. And then when I when I started doing it and John Sevilla started doing it, you've got no idea how how enjoyable it was, watch, was to watch the younger guys come through and, and do the same sort of thing. And and we had to do it because we got so big, but we didn't do the Wall Street walk. We, you know, we, we sort of led change in a lot of ways. And and there was all these sort of esoteric things that you do that led one thing led to another that, you know, you sort of got something out of. I can remember writing a letter to the Financial Review naming in the letter section, naming 13 companies that had gone overseas and lost money through overseas expansion, it was, and it was a really good list, right? And I'd known 13, if not 15, companies, right? And only one of those companies, Brian McNamee at CSL, rang me up and said, I think you're wrong there, and this was at a lunchtime. And I was on the phone, this is after CSL had almost got back to where we, you know, we'd sold out previously at. And I was on the phone for him for, you know, for, for 35 minutes talking about, you know, his acquisition in, in, in Switzerland and that sort of thing. And I suddenly realised that, you know, he was the smartest one of the lot, and there was something in what he was saying, and it made you wonder about the other ones. You know, you know, had they, you know, did they care or whatever? And it was all that sort of stuff. So even I know that's it's not probably not a good example, but I suppose the best way I can put it is we took ownership of those companies. We didn't; they weren't a commodity. It wasn't a, it wasn't a percentage of a of an index or, or whatever to us, and, and 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 that counted for a lot, a lot, but. You know, as, as more and more fund managers come along, it becomes more and more harder to do that. If you've got a 1,000 fund managers out there today, you know, they're all scouting around in the same sort of pond. The bigger they get, the harder it's just going to get in terms of, you know, competing in, 
you know, if you're taking the smaller, smaller fish out of, the, out of the frying pan. You basically end up sticking closer. As you get bigger, you end up replicating the index more and more. Or you take bigger bets away from it. Or your, your positions, you work it back the other way. If you're running $10 billion and you want to have, I can't do the figures in my head without the calculator, but if you work it back the other way, that, that sort of dictates what percentage of the company you're going to have to take if you want to get to 1% or 2%. It's the same as a future fund today or Australian Super. I mean, you know, I won't use a choice, use a future fund. If it's $200 billion, so I do Australian Super all the time, it's $200 billion. So 1% position for Australian Super is, is $2 billion, right? And it's, you know, you're That's working a lot. It's a lot. I mean, hopefully that calculation's right, but it is. It is right. It's a lot of money. You can't get set. You, you know, I forget what the turnover was in the Australian market, share market today, but I think it's about $8 billion. I mean, you can't get set that, that easily and that quickly. Again, I've told the story before. You know, when I was at 452, I think Australian Super was $3 billion and we were managing $3 billion. We were all for them. And they were saying to me, we don't want you getting any bigger, but... Today they're they're going to be pushing three hundred billion dollars. So I don't I don't know how the differential in percentage size obviously is different to Australia, but it, the percentages still work. Whether it's you know whatever, it just becomes very hard the bigger you get, and you know that, that's the same for all fund managers. Peter, I, I'm conscious of taking up your entire Friday evening because I I think uh, when I think about the the timing the span of your career, there's so many things we could talk about. You know the trend to more takeovers and I mean you've obviously lived through deregulation and the currency floated and then there was things like uh, the reckless lending to the banks in the early 90s Uh, you know that we could probably talk for about three days on this stuff so I'll just I'll just have one other question for you I remember when the um, and this is not a political podcast but when the May 2019 election was around there was some talk about changing uh, the franking credits and dividend imputation system in Australia. And I know um, if memory serves correctly, you were a passionate advocate of uh, maintaining the system as is because, you know, there's such a big volume of funds under management in superannuation these days that changing the system could be potentially reckless or dangerous. But my question is, do, do you think that payout ratios in Australia are too high due to the tax system? And does it lead to too many people maybe investing in lower quality companies because they're they're chasing the yield and uh, well i'm just interested to get your thoughts on that really how do you think about uh, dividends as part of your strategy well you know very simplistically earnings pay dividends i mean you know i mean you know when i when i started at perpetual you know pay at ratios were around 50 percent and because of frank in the light they're now up around between 80 and 100 percent now obviously when you you're making a profit and making earnings, you can do two things with it. You can either pay it out in a dividend or reinvest in, in your own company. Now, again, it's not black and white because some of the Australian companies are so dominant in a small market of 25 million people, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world that they're probably better off and have been better off paying out those dividends. But I do think going forward we do have a problem in Australia where companies have sort of flipped completely from wasting well, not so much wasting it, but searching for growth through acquisition or reinvesting in the business to, to paying it out. And we may well run into the situation, you know, you know, whether it's a bank or whatever that's that's compromising, if they're not already doing it, compromising on compliance or compromising on tech spend to pay out a dividend. And, you know, there's little examples like that. And I think that does worry me uh, in the sense that there's so much focus on yields particularly given where interest rates are today, you have to remember that a high dividend yield, particularly with, you know, payout ratios being 90 or 100%, is higher risk. And unless that company is, you know, in a very good market position, the management is sound, there is some risk if it's not growing or not, not growing well that that dividend will be compromised. You know, there's a very good example in the market at the moment, AGL, you know, is paying out all its earnings, but it's also underwriting the dividend. And I, you know, I honestly can't, and un, underwriting an unfranked dividend, which I, for the life of me I can't understand, but, you know, again, because of this sort of headline idea of having a yield that is, you know, is is, is artificial in a lot of ways. So, again, it's not a black and white answer, but, you know, I'd be more, I'd like to see more Australian companies retain earnings at this point in time and have a go 
in terms of building businesses rather than just falling for the two-card trick of paying out dividends. And let's not forget in the background, you know, most CEOs in Australia are there for five or six years. It's somewhat short-term in terms of tenure. It's, it's, it's always better, given that they're awarded based upon total shareholder return to pay out a dividend, then, you know, go for, go for quick growth to get a share price up. And I think, you know, I mean, that's sad as well. What you mentioned there, Peter, is that the, the Andrew Smithers argument about he's saying, you know, CEOs are short-term focused now because they know they're not there. They know they're not there for a long time. Secondly, if they boost a share price, that that rewards them personally in a lot of cases because they've got stock options and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, that, that point aside, the biggest question really is what will South Sydney you know, get over the top of Storm and the Panthers, which is probably highly unlikely. But you can you can have a shot at that. Do you think your Rabbitohs will get this year? Oh well, obviously, obviously we've got sort of a handicap with the <laughs> with the trail gone, mate. But I mean, I, I mean, don't, don't don't forget you've got the master case there as well, mate. He's been around a little bit. I mean, it's well, actually think the Rabbitohs perform better as the underdogs rather than the you know rather than the, yeah, the red hot favourites and. Uh, you know, they're you know, they've got a they're a great traditional side. I don't think, you know, if anything, you know, Australia wants the rabbits to, to lead us through tough times. So. I'd better wrap this up before we get on to Ashes cricket and uh, the uh, <laughs> the way the way things are going in England at the moment. So, uh, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure and a thrill for us to be able to tap into your all those years of insight. I won't get people to bombard you with emails, but if you want to uh, troll Peter on social media at P Simpson Morgan on Twitter and. Uh, Peter will uh, block you in due course, no doubt. If, you, <laughs> if you've got any other questions, always uh, shoot uh, Stephen or I a line and we'll be more than happy to try and fill you in on any blanks that we didn't get to cover today. So, uh, Peter, thanks uh, very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and enjoy your weekend. Cheers. Look after yourselves. See you, guys. See you, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.